0: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and welcome to Naked Reflections. What exactly is music, and why does it affect us so deeply? It seems that musical communication is at least as old as speaking. Here's Ian Cross on the Naked Scientist show, The Science of Music.
1: Music is probably doing stuff we needed more or less the same time as we needed language in terms of enabling a kind of fluidity of interaction and particularly managing situations of social uncertainty where no one's quite sure what's going on. A situation's on the edge. If people start saying something and talking about the determinants, the structure of the situation to each other, it could get out of hand. Music in that context, in that situation, seems to act as a kind of lubricant to allow people to interact fluidly and easily without getting into conflict with each other.
0: You only have to hear a concert by Daniel Barenbaum's East-West Divan Orchestra to understand that the modifying effect of music can go way beyond the personal. Music is our topic this week, in particular, living in harmony. The Wolf Institute has been exploring medieval and modern interactions between Muslim, Jewish, and Christian neighbours in the Middle East through music, and then taking the findings out to schools in the UK. We show how shared melodies and prayer chants have been the norm for centuries and can provide common ground for people of different faiths and traditions today. Joining me to discuss and perform are two PhD scholars at the Wolf Institute, Dunya Habash. And Mohammed Ahmed. Dunya, picking up from the clip, how do you think music can be a social lubricant?
2: Well, I think in the simplest sense, if we just think about a regular gathering or a dinner party, you know, as soon as the silence comes in, and things get a little bit awkward, the first thing anyone does, usually in those moments, is to turn some background music on. So I think that's just a very natural reaction for some reason. It's very soothing for us to have something going on sonically in the background. And I think, you know, historically speaking, we've always been like this. And really, if you think about Mozart, Beethoven, all of these big classical composers, a lot of their music, especially when they first started, was written for dinner parties, basically. You know, like um, Eine kleine Nachtmusik, this very famous piece that we we listen to by Mozart today. I mean, it was literally written for a dinner party, background music, basically. So that's where a lot of, uh, you know, the traditional classical music originated from, really. And then, of course, nowadays, we just think it's so fabulous, which it is, of course. But I mean, at that time... You know, Mozart, Beethoven, all these composers just rolled out this stuff just for money, basically, as uh, a lubricant for these exquisite social gatherings to fill in the space for these elites who were trying to schmooze each other at these big dinner parties, basically. So, yeah, I think music has been with humans for a long time. And I actually really like this quote by John Blacking. He's an ethnomusicologist, and he wrote this text in the 1970s called How Musical is Man. And he basically, his argument is that, you know, uh, because there's so much music in the world, and it's always been there, that it's reasonable to suppose that music, like language and religion, is a kind of species-specific trait of man or human. So I've, I've always really liked that and been intrigued by that idea. So, you know, music has many functions, and it's still quite a mysterious phenomenon. We still haven't quite cracked, you know, its evolution, where it started, where it came from. But we do know that cultures around the world have music and have been performing music since the dawn of humanity, basically.
0: I can't get out of my mind, Dunya, the idea of Mozart and Beethoven as Muzak going up in the elevator of ancient times. <laughs> um, but there's a lot there. Um, Mohammed. do you agree?
3: The way I see music is it's sort of the epitome of the sense of hearing. So in the same way that the most beautiful view is to the eye and the most beautiful taste is to the tongue, it's the same thing for the ear. It's the, the highest form of the sense of hearing. And so, of course, is music to the ear. And so that's what I think it is for the individual. It represents the sensual experience in terms of senses. For the group, of course, it then becomes a shared experience. People can then engage in that sort of soul transformatory experience together. And I think that's where it can really take off and and sort of elevate people spiritually. And I think that's the way in which in which people can, can enjoy music together. Yeah.
0: I suppose it's that shared experience which is of particular interest to us, isn't it? Because there's this mm-hmm. cross-pollination, if you like, between uh, Muslim, Jewish and Christian musical traditions, particularly in the Middle East.
2: Can you sketch out some of that for us? Yes, absolutely. So basically, the foundational musical system that is used in the Middle East is shared by all of these groups that lived together and coexisted together there for centuries, especially in the urban centers like uh, Baghdad, Aleppo, Halab, Damascus, Cairo. All of these urban centers had, you know, large Arab Christian and Arab Jewish communities that lived side by side in the same neighborhoods. So a lot of melodies and songs and texts were interchanged between these communities. And the kind of uh, foundation that allowed this to happen is the fact that they all use the same musical system, what we call today maqam, the maqam systems basically, which is just modes or scales. It's the Arab modes and scales that's used in Arab music. There are hundreds of them, which, you know, some people spend years studying every single one because each little iteration has its own name. And this this system goes back centuries. You know, a lot of people think the Persians are the ones who really started these things. And that's why a lot of names today are still uh, Persian names and then were Arabized later. I mean, it's a very complex Theory That was developed over the centuries and is still in use today, of course. So yeah, I think today what we will do maybe is show how this musical system gets transferred into the religious realm, which is, of course, if we think about recitation, for example. You know, a lot of what we're hearing is maqam. So if you go to a Mizrahi Jewish prayer service, for example, you will hear the cantor using the maqams in his recitation of the Torah. If you go to a mosque, you will hear the imam using maqam, usually in the recitation of the Qur'an. And this is kind of the heart of the Living in Harmony project. It was trying to explore these musical connections between these these communities.
0: Let's take one or two examples. What's the kanun?
2: I have brought my kanun to the studio today to play a few of scales or modes that I was talking about, and the kanun basically is one of the essential instruments in Middle Eastern music, and it is the the predecessor to the piano. Actually, you know, it looks like a harp, a trapezoidal harp, and it has ninety nine strings, which is so difficult and annoying to tune. So every time you want to play this instrument, you have to spend five or ten minutes just tuning it, which is one of the annoyances of it. But it has a beautiful sound, so it is worth it. It's like the piano to Western music. So this is the instrument where a lot of people learn the maqams and all of the theory was developed on this instrument, basically. So, I'm going to just play a little bit on it. I'm not going to play any songs, just the scale so you can hear uh, what I'm talking about. So, this is a D major scale in the Western system, which is called a Ajam on D in, in the Maqam system. So, the Ajam Maqam is the major scale in the West. So, I'm just going to pluck it really quickly. Oh, sorry, I have it uh, tuned differently. Just give me one second. <laughs> Okay, here we go. So if you're a trained musician, or or anyone actually... We hear this scale a lot in in Western music It's a typical major scale, basically Now what I'm going to do I'm going to switch it, change it to hijaz Hijaz is a maqam that is is used a lot in Arabic music And it's associated with haniyya in Arabic Which means longing So that's another cool thing about maqams Each maqam has its own kind of sense or feeling to it And they've given them names So hijaz is associated with haniyya or longing So I'm going to pluck it out for you guys. And then what we're going to do, Muhammad is going to actually use the maqam to recite the Quran. So just give me a second, because that's another thing about the qanun. You have to change all of the levers every time you want to change the maqam, which is very annoying. Now, one second. There we go. Hang on. Okay. Yeah, wait. Okay, here we go. Okay, got it. Sorry. So I don't know if you can hear this tone. This tone doesn't exist in the Western scale. It's uh, it's a quarter tone, which you can't really play on a piano or any uh, Western tempered instrument, but you can on the qanun. And that's another cool thing about maqams. There are quarter tones in them, which for the Western ear gives it that really Eastern sounding vibe to it. So um, do you want me to play it again, Mohammed?
3: Probably jump in with it. If I could just uh, briefly mention, it was really interesting what you said about, you know, each maqam having sort of reflecting different emotions and having different effects. It's the same in Quranic recitation. So in Quranic recitation, we apply different maqams depending on what the meaning of the passage is. So for example, if it's about punishment or, or God's wrath or something like this, then we would use a more serious maqam. So something like hijaz or sabah. And if it comes to sort of, you know, verses about heaven, for example, we would use joyful maqams like Nahawand and Ras. I just thought that was interesting how, you know, it's not just sort of limited to music and musical instruments, but also to the Qur'anic recitation. So, yeah, an example of Hijaz, I'll give it a go.
4: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabb. We are the ones who إياك نعبد وإياك wa aaa ke nagarbudu wa aaa أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا
0: That was wonderful. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. I'm discussing music and the idea of living in harmony with my guests, Dunya Habash and Muhammad Ahmed. Like language and religion, music is at the core of what it is to be human. Here's Ian Cross again speaking on the Naked Scientist show, The Science of Music.
1: I think people started making social sounds, and those social sounds eventually partial out, roughly, I think, when we get to Homo sapiens ourselves a couple hundred thousand years ago, into what we might now think of as music and language, which I would think of as complementary components of the Human Communicative Toolkit.
0: Just before the break, we had a beautiful recitation that you performed for us, Mohammed. So I know your work is looking at Muslim and Jewish recitation relations. I'm just wondering, in terms of what you delivered, how that can play out in Muslim-Jewish understanding and, and relations.
3: Well, absolutely. Islam and Judaism share so much. And of course, that continues into the musical sphere. Both have very similar rules of recitation and cantillation. It's very similar. In Islam, we have what's called a tajweed pronunciation, which is essentially pronouncing the words correctly, following the rules of Arabic pronunciation, correct Arabic pronunciation, which is the most important thing. What comes secondary to that is then the maqam or the tune. So you cannot compromise the pronunciation of the Arabic in favor of the tune. That's one of the principles that you learn. As I learned uh, Quran as, as a young child, I was very fortunate to have a very good Algerian teacher. And he taught me sort of very good Arabic pronunciation. And sort of years later, then I got into the tune business. You don't go into it until you've mastered what's called tajweed in Arabic. It's very similar in Judaism. But I think If I could highlight that it's not only one of the best ways to get a flavor of a religion or a culture that's contrary to yours. It's also, I mean, for example, like Dunya said, Mizrahi Jews have more in common with Arab Muslims than they do with other Jews. Uh, And that is amazing. It sort of shows not only the differences between Islam and Judaism or any religion for that matter, uh, but actually it highlights the similarities between religions and sometimes the differences that we have within one religion. So I think that's quite beautiful.
0: That's incredibly unexpected and striking. How is it possible that eastern branches of Judaism like Mizrahi or Arab or Eastern Judaism is closer to Islam than other parts of the world? parts of the Jewish world.
2: Well, it's back to what I was saying about these communities that have been living there for centuries. Uh, Think about like uh, the exodus to Babylon, uh, the Jewish communities that ended up in Iraq, what we consider modern day Iraq. I mean... Some of those families stayed there until the 20th century and were living side by side with, you know, later the Muslim conquest, with Muslim neighbors, Arab Christians. So, of course, over time, you know, cultures mix and people share melodies and they they take ideas from each other. They exchange and they debate with one another philosophies readings, knowledge, all of it is exchanged between these communities. And that's why yesterday, actually, in preparation for this podcast, uh, Muhammad and I were listening to the cantor Moshe Habusha. He's Mizrahi Jew um, in Jerusalem um, of Baghdadi origin. And he recites the Torah in the same way that Muhammad just recited the the Quran for us. I mean, it's the same style and flavor and use of the maqams. Uh, The only difference is, you know, he's doing it in Hebrew as opposed to to, Arabic. So, I mean, we were both yesterday, again, taken aback, watching him do this recitation. And uh, I wish we had someone here to kind of illustrate that. But if anyone's interested, just check out Moshe Habusha Torah cantillation, and you'll see what we're talking about.
0: It's interesting. And I refer listeners to a previous episode where we had Rick Sofa and Ibrahim Mogra having a conversation about the shared stories and narratives, but also the musical traditions came into it as well. And I think Naked Reflections listeners will be surprised to hear about these similarities between Islam and Judaism and musical traditions and recitation, as as you've just discussed. Now, Dunya, part of your work is taking that into schools, And in particular, faith schools, Muslim, Jewish, and I suspect also Christian, Anglican, Roman Catholic faith schools. What sort of responses do you get? Are are the pupils completely surprised by it? Is there an element of suspicion? Do they think there's a sort of desire for
2: syncretism? That's a very good question, and yes, of course, we had some difficulties, but actually, interestingly, most of the time, students are are very surprised by this information, especially because most things they know about the relationship between Judaism and Islam is that it is one based on conflict— that it's one tied to Israel-Palestine in today's discourse. So, you know, nobody really knows this history. And to be honest, I myself, even though I am of Syrian origin and I have a grandmother who grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in, in Aleppo, I myself didn't really know much about Arab Jews until I started working on this project. And that's when I discovered, actually, that they're using maqam. They listen to Arabic music. Imkaltum and is is of their favorites. And there's a big community of them in Brooklyn, actually, particularly Halabi Jews. So a lot of Jews from, from Aleppo migrated to Brooklyn over the course of the 20th century. And I met a lot of these people uh, when I did fieldwork there a few years ago. And it was just incredible. I mean, they speak Arabic felt like I was talking to another fellow syrian, you know and and the only difference is that they go to synagogue and I go to mosque and so in terms of taking this into the schools, I think A lot of people don't know this history, so it's always a surprise, uh, especially for young kids, uh, to see this. But another thing that we kind of had some difficulties with at the beginning is figuring out how to make this relatable to, you know, these kids who are growing up in a very secular environment, especially the non-faith schools that we've gone into. For a lot of them, we had to start with the basics of what is Judaism, what is Islam, where do these religions come from, when did they start interacting, what are the practices. Practices and the rituals, and then we were able to kind of switch into the cultural similarities and the sharing of cultural knowledge between these. So that was a little bit tricky to figure out at the beginning, but I think me and Elisa, my colleague on the project, um, we do a lot of the teaching together. We have finally cracked it. We figured out how to get them to relate to the material using examples from their daily lives. So, yeah. That's just a little bit of the the challenges and surprises of the project. But it's been such a wonderful experience, and I really think that, you know, by the end of it, we're trying to turn these workshops into a toolkit that teachers can use in the classroom to teach about these relations in the Middle East. And I think it's just wonderful because kids get a completely different picture of, you know, the modern Middle East and what happened there, you know, very different from what they see on the news or hear in today's discourse.
0: Tell us, Mohammed. is the question more about your work in the community, in terms of the Muslim community here in Cambridge or back home? I'd like the listeners to get a sense of what we're talking about in terms of today, outside of the schooling or educational system.
3: Outside the normal schooling system, the way that Muslim students sort of engage with this stuff is a few hours after school every day is usually dedicated to Quranic recitation. It's a regular thing You know Some parents aren't doing it Quite as much anymore But when I was younger Most Muslim families Were sending their children Every evening And we'd be reciting together Learning Like I said Tajweed Learning memorization And learning maqam So these three things Are in tandem together And then what you can do With that Is once you've Memorized the Quran Once you've perfected your tajweed and your pronunciation. And once you've perfected your your maqam and your tuning, you can then get what's called an ijazah, which is an official permission to be able to recite not only in the maqams, but also to recite according to perfect tajweed. And the way that the actual education system works with regard to the Qur'an is that it goes back and it's meant to be a sanad or a chain of transmission all the way back to the Prophet and that every student who was taught the Qur'an was taught it in the different manners of recitation, different ways of recitation, different pronunciations and different tunes as well. We today are part of that grand tradition of recitation. And yes, I mean, it carries on. I mean, it's not limited anymore to, you know, the oases of the Arabian desert. You know, I'm born and bred in Britain and I learned this stuff, you know, when I was very young. So I think it's amazing how these traditions have permeated and percolated every aspect of society and they are everywhere now. And I think it's very beautiful.
0: Oh, it is very beautiful. And are there local customs? I mean, religions have good digestion systems, don't they? Um, So are there
3: local variations, whether it's in Europe or in the UK? When it comes to Quran recitation, generally we're restricted to the maqams. So the maqams are those original Arabic tunes, and or Persian, depending on your perspective. And those really are how Quran is restricted. However, also we have the genre of nasheed. Uh, Nasheed is Islamic non-instrumental music. It can be instrumental as well. depends on your jurisprudential opinion. So what happens with that now is very interesting because, uh, and recently we, I think we had Tim Winter on here, he's recently done um, some poems and nasheed on sort of Western scales. There's been a movement recently. Uh, so Islamic music has been able to tap into that Western side of things. Whereas when it comes to Quranic recitation, we're really sort of restricted to the traditional modes. Any sort of changes in Quranic recitation perhaps might not be well-received because it might be perceived as too changing, which could call into question the integrity of the recitation of the Qur'an, which is not what many Muslims want. In line with that continuation that I was talking about, it's really important that these tunes are maintained. And therefore, in, in terms of Qur'anic recitation, there's not too much changing. But where we do have diversity and we have a lot of changes is in the Islamic music scene.
0: That leads me to the question of the growth of secularism, if you like, You've both mentioned the challenge of the decline, if you like, in faith literacy, which all communities experience, the Muslim community as any other. So is there a role for popular music, if you like, or secular music in this sort of work? Is there a Muslim equivalent, for example, of klezmer music?
2: Music in general is a very complicated topic in the Islamic world. Since the beginning, there has been... debate of whether music is permissible, whether it is good for your soul, whether it is good for your faith, or if it's a corruptible thing. And of course, this debate goes all the way back to the Greeks, right? The Greeks were at the beginning of, you know, trying to decide what is good music, what is bad music, what music influences you to do bad things, what music elevates your spirit and leads to this transcendental experience. So, I mean, this debate is from a long time ago, and the Muslims really tapped into it. So you have a lot of Muslims today, as Muhammad mentioned, which school of thought you come from, who will say that music is haram, it is impermissible, it is a corruptible thing, and therefore you should always avoid it. And those people, some of them go as far as to ignore the fact that Quran is using modes and maqam in its recitation, They just completely ignore that. (laughs) And then you have other schools of thought that allow different things, such as, for example, okay, non-stringed instruments are okay. Percussion instruments are fine. And there's a hadith that they use to to justify that. So that's why you have in, in the Islamic genres that Muhammad is talking about in terms of like some of the and Ashid or dhikr songs, they only use percussion instruments. And then you have other people who are a bit more flexible, and they say, no, it's okay, you can do music as long as, you know, the the text is not encouraging you to be a bad Muslim or or to transgress God's uh, will, basically. So, I mean, you have all these different iterations, and that's why... Music has been such a difficult thing in the Islamic world, and we 're afraid to even say that we do something called music in some communities
3: from an Islamic perspective it 's really interesting how this development on views of music happens because, like Dunya said, it started off with Muslim theologians who were engaging with Greek philosophy who said that music corrupts the soul, and they used verses of the Quran that were not in reference to music and ahadith, some ahadith which were not in reference to music and applied them to that and sort of it was a logical argument that was made and what's interesting is now it's the literalists who take on that argument and they are very literal about that argument and it's not the theologians who are engaging with philosophy and those people nowadays are the muslim scholars who now permit it so it's very interesting to see how that shift has occurred it started off as a a rational prohibition and now it's become a literalist prohibition which is almost flipped well why don't you
0: flip the naked reflections listeners can we have one more example of Maqam recitation or makum.
3: absolutely. would you like a, a happy tune or a mixture?
2: You should do the one where you mix through all the maqams. if you are a, considered a master, if you are able to flip through the modes very easily and very fluidly. <laughs>
4: وَإِنْ تَظَّاهَرَ عَلَيْهِ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ مَوْلًا وَجْبْرِيلُ وَصَالِحُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ ظَهِيرٌ <سؤال> عسى ربّه إن you that you are not Musslimatim minatil conitatil tabatin abidatil saihatil. And
0: that's me. And that's the end of this week's episode of Naked Reflections. Thanks to my guests, Dunya Habash and Muhammad Ahmed, and thanks to you two for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? There's a diverse range of topics, and they're all available for your listening pleasure. You may also want to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more bracing discussion and some new guests.